0: What's up, Watermark family? My name is David. I work with The Porch on Tuesday nights and Young Adults, and I'm so excited to be back jumping in as we continue this series, The Story. Let me start with uh, a question for the audience. Who, by show of hands in this room, in your house, does a fake tree every year for Christmas? Oh, wow, man, the vast majority. Who does a real tree? The authentic friends here. Anyone does a frosted tree, just out of curiosity? Kind of the frosted mini-wheats version of a tree? <laughs> uh, that, that tree never makes sense to me. But Anyone that goes out and actually cuts down their tree? Their family tradition is they go somewhere and they go cut down their tree. Okay, all right. Well, in my house, we do a real tree. We don't go cut it because we just go to Home Depot and we don't churn our own butter and we go have someone else <laughs> cut it for us. And, So we do a real tree in our house, and this is actually a real tree that is up here, and often a real tree is called a living tree, and one thing that is true uh, about a real tree is it is no longer living for sure. In other words, the moment it is cut off from its roots, it has begun to die, and you can bring it into your home and you can dress it up and make it look pretty and put lights on it or put ornaments on it, but by new year's eve you're going to clearly see that it is dying and it will begin to wilt and as you know anyone who has a real tree experiences the fact that it has been cut off from the source of life it is no longer alive and the effects of that lead to decay and you just clearly begin to see that now what does that have to do with redemption which is what we're talking about this morning Well, last week we talked about the fall, and the fall was where sin was introduced into our world, and in essence, what happened to our world and every person that's a part of it is what happens when a tree is cut off from its roots, is that it may look okay, but given enough time, you're going to see the effects of decay and death happen. And so when the fall happened and sin was introduced, our world began to die, And we experience the effects of this everywhere you look. You see people getting sick and people dying earlier than they should or people just dying in general in life and the brokenness that's a part of it. And God began to introduce a plan to reconnect just like a tree would need to be reconnected to its roots in order to live. God began to introduce a plan to reconnect our world and each person that's a part of it to the source of life. And that plan was redemption. So this morning, I want to talk about redemption. Redemption, by definition, if you look it up in the dictionary, is the action of saving or being saved from sin, evil, or error. And this morning, I want to look at three aspects of God's plan of redemption. I want to look specifically at who it's for, where it's from, and what it does. Who it's for, where it's from, and what it does. And we're going to look Specifically at the Christmas story, because we're in the midst of Christmas and you guys were handed ornaments as you walked in the room this morning. And those are going to play a part here in a second. But we're going to look at God's plan of redemption that he introduced in the Christmas season. Matthew, specifically is where we're going to look in Matthew chapter 1. And Matthew writes his gospel. And after 400 years of silence and the nation of Israel waiting for God to deliver them, to show up and to send the Messiah... Matthew begins to write how God would introduce the savior of the world and introduce his plan of redemption. Matthew says this in Matthew chapter one, starting in verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. I love the name Ram, man. That is like a nose tackle waiting to happen. Ram, <laughs> the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashan, Nashan the father of Salmon. It's not salmon, it's salmon. You're gonna to get to heaven one day, and if you call him Salmon, he's like, Bro, I'm not a fish, man. I am a person. Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz was the father whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And Jacob, verse 16 the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now Matthew, when he launches into his account of the arrival of Jesus onto the scene, he does something very interesting. Genealogies in the first century were a really big deal. They would be akin basically to a resume. And in order for somebody to be the Messiah, they had to prove that they were related to King David because the... The uh, nation of Israel knew that through David's line, or his ancestors, there would come the Messiah. And so Matthew sets out and he's going to prove that Jesus is related to David. But he does something else that's really interesting inside of his genealogy. He does something that most of us would not do. And that he seems to highlight almost the most scandalous, twisted aspects of the family tree of Jesus. What do, I, what do I mean by most of us would not do? In other words, if you remember when you were dating your husband or your wife, there was that first time when you introduced them to your family over the holidays or over Thanksgiving or over Christmas, and there was almost some nerves that came with it where you were trying to prepare them and tell them, hey, you're going to meet my crazy uncle, and he's going to you know, have a weird British accent, and he's not even British, or you're going to meet the person in my family who has all this dysfunction, and you, you kind of want to you know, either hide that person or avoid that from happening too soon before you get serious in the relationship because you don't want to scare them away and be like, we're all crazy, which means I'm crazy. And Matthew does the exact opposite. He launches into the gospel that he's going to write by highlighting, not hiding, the most broken, twisted branches on the family tree of Jesus. Why would he do that? Because Matthew's communicating a message that he's going to launch into for the next 28 chapters. And these people that are a part of Jesus' family are the point of the story he's about to write. Why what, what do I say he highlights? Because you can miss it if you just read it quickly. Well, look at the language that he uses as he highlights the first point that redemption is for sinners. Redemption is for sinners. If you take notes, you can write that down. Redemption is for sinners. And Matthew is highlighting that by going through the family tree Of Jesus, verse two, he says Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Why would he bring up his brothers? Well, you remember that Judah was one of twelve sons, and one of those sons was sold into slavery by Judah, and the other ten. His name was Joseph, and Matthew goes out of his way to highlight, hey, Judah was one of the ones who sold his brother, into slavery, and he came back and he lied to their father Jacob, saying, oh man, he must have got killed or you know, eaten by a lion or something happened. And because of jealousy, Judah sold his brother and lied to their father. And for years and years and years, at every holiday and every festival, there would be an empty seat at the table, and Judah knew. And Judah did something far worse that Matthew further goes to highlight. He says this, Judah was the father Of Perez and Zerah, these two twins, whose mother was Tamar. Now, I don't know what you know about the story of Judah and Tamar, but it's probably the most Jerry Springer story inside of the book of Genesis. (laughs) Why do I say that? Well, Tamar was the daughter in law of Judah, and Judah slept with his daughter in law. Now, in his defense, he didn't know it was his daughter-in-law. He thought it was a prostitute, which I don't know if that makes it any better. (laughs) And yet this was the one out of all of Judah's children and of all of the sons that Jacob had that God would introduce. And Matthew goes out of his way to say, you know what else is in the family tree of Jesus? Incest. And Matthew is just getting started because where he goes next is, and Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, and Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. He introduces two additional women, which is unusual. In other words, in the first century, you almost always would write a lineage, and it never included women, just it was the custom of the day. But he introduces two women that are both foreigners. Ruth, as you may know, in the story of Ruth, and she was a Moabite. Basically, he's saying Jesus was not a pure-blood Jewish person. He's very intentional. Matthew is trying to communicate something that all throughout the Bible is communicated, that God's heart is for all people everywhere. And of course, in the line of the Messiah, there's going to be people who are not even full-blooded Jewish people because God's heart is for everyone because he's trying to course-correct a misunderstanding that a lot of his readers would have had, that God, man, he is all about the Jewish people. In other words, they would have thought that God really is focused, loves And wants to save just the Jewish people. And that day, God's perspective, or they thought God was up in heaven saying, Give me a J, give me an E, give me a W, I'm all about the Jews. We love God. Yes, we do, because we're Jews. And Matthew's trying to say his heart is for everyone. But he also introduces us to a woman who had an occupation that was one of the most scandalous of all the people in the Bible a woman named Rahab. Now, I don't know what you know about the story of Rahab, but Rahab is found in the book of Joshua, and Rahab was a prostitute. In other words, the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus and the great-grandmother of King David was a prostitute. If you're writing the genealogy of anyone... Are you going out of your way to say, oh yeah, and by the way, um, great Mima was, uh, she sold herself for sex, and here she is, that's what Matthew's doing. Why? Because Matthew knew these weren't just part of the family tree of Jesus, they're the point of the gospel that he's about to write, because redemption is for sinners, and Jesus came from sinners Because he came for sinners. Because every person that's ever lived is broken. And Matthew's going out of his way to highlight inside of the family tree. It's not nearly as pretty as you may think. And hanging on some of the branches are scandals, including prostitution, incest. And then, as though he's twisting the knife, he says this. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife I want you to think about that verse why would he put it like that he brings up another woman but he doesn't even use her name he goes out of his way to remind his readers of the story that that woman was a part of now I don't know what you know about David and Uriah but Uriah was one of David's mighty men He was one of his closest friends or confidants, and he had these 30 guys that were his closest guys, and Uriah was an incredible warrior, and one day he was out at battle, and David was the king, and he was home in the palace, and he's walking around on the roof, and Uriah is out there fighting battles for King David. And David is walking around on the roof of his palace, and he sees a woman taking a bath who just happens to be named Bathsheba because God has a sense of humor and he says who is that woman taking a bath over there and he sends a basically someone to go check and see and they say oh that's the wife of Uriah and David says bring her to me and David sleeps with her and a few weeks later there's a knock on the door and David's told she's pregnant and David goes into you know, cover-up mode and tries to think, oh no, what do I do? I've been caught. i basically, I've, I've had an affair and I've slept with one of my closest friends. Wives, what should I do? And instead of coming clean, he says, I know what I'll do. I'll bring him home, try to get him to sleep with her. And as it happens, none of that happened to work. And so eventually David says, I've got to take things into my own hands. And after committing adultery... He decides to murder the husband of the woman that he slept with. And Matthew, knowing the savior of the world that he walked with for three years, says, as I launch into this, I want to highlight the brokenness of the people that maybe you see as picturesque or manicured And showcase, not hide, but highlight the scandals. Because Jesus came for sinners. Because redemption is for sinners. And then he brings up Solomon, who, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, had hundreds and hundreds of wives, disobeying God. Wives that would lead him eventually away from the God that he wrote about, that he worshipped. And then he brings up Ahaz, who is claimed to be the worst king in Israel's history, who would sacrifice an idol worship to his own son and idolatry, because Matthew is highlighting redemption is for sinners. Why do I say that? Why would I say that Matthew is going out of his way to highlight those? Well, Matthew, I don't know what you know, or if you know who wrote the book of Matthew, it was Matthew. (laughs) And Matthew had a story before he met Jesus Matthew was a tax collector he was an outcast of society in other words tax collectors were seen as someone who God had nothing or wanted nothing to do with and candidly as someone who wanted nothing to do with God in order to become a tax collector you had to basically say hey I don't believe in Israel I don't believe in the God who's there I've abandoned my people and I don't think there's going to be any consequence they weren't allowed to go to temple or to go to church and worship God. They were seen as someone that wanted nothing and God wanted nothing to do with them. And one day, Jesus, the Savior of the world, perfection in sandals, walks up to Matthew and says, I want a relationship with you. Follow me. Matthew chapter 9, it says this. Matthew sitting at a tax collector booth. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While sitting, or while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, Matthew saw face to face the son of God. He knew exactly what Jesus was like, that he came for sinners. He came from sinners. And that was not just part of the family tree. It is the point of the gospel he's about to write because redemption is for sinners. And he, with incredible clarity, goes out of his way to highlight the brokenness that made up the family tree of Jesus. Because there is not a person in the world apart from Jesus that doesn't have brokenness in them and in their family tree and in their life. And that's the point he's trying to highlight and hit home. And specifically, if you're in the room and you feel like you're too far gone, you feel like God doesn't want anything to do with you, Matthew, if he was here, he would say, You're exactly the type of candidate that God wants a relationship with. And he has been seeking you, whether or not you even realize it. Even the fact that you're here is a reflection of the fact that God is seeking you, even if you can't see it or even if you don't believe it. It's, it's not dissimilar to this or it's similar to this. My daughter is three years old, and we'll do it, uh, you know, parents do with their kids. And we'll play hide and seek. And when they're three, they don't totally, you know, understand the the game and that they will go hide and they'll hide somewhere where they're basically like hiding, you know, behind like a pencil and they're covering their eyes and they think that you can't see them. And she'll go and hide. And as a parent, you know, you almost have to intentionally try to be like, her name is Monroe. Oh, where could she be? Monroe, where are you? I can't see you. And she thinks because she's covering her eyes that you're not near, or that you can't see her. Because she thinks, if she can't see you, then you're not near, or you can't see her. And that's funny when you're three, but in my experience, there's a lot of people that live their entire life that way, with God. That they think, man, if I can't see him, he must not be near, or he's not seeking after me. And Matthew, if he was here, and sitting, eyeball to eyeball, across the table from you, he would say, God has been seeking you since the moment you took your first breath until the moment you take your last. God is seeking sinners. Redemption is for sinners. That is not part of the tree. That's the point of the gospel. So redemption is for sinners. And then we're going to look at where redemption is from and where Matthew goes next, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, so they're engaged, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after, after he considered this, basically, Joseph and Mary are engaged, and Mary shows up one day and says, Joseph turns out I'm pregnant and think about what your response would be in that moment if she says hey I'm pregnant and the father's God if you're engaged in the room you'd go okay what I bet it is I mean how do you explain that to other people of like oh yeah hey the father's God and uh this is Joe and uh we're gonna get married here soon and so he decides to do what any rational person would do which is man I I don't know that I can make this work You're not just pregnant, you're crazy. And then an angel shows up and says this to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now, the name Jesus is a translation in English of the Hebrew word Yeshua, Or Joshua. In other words, when Joseph is hearing that, he's going, wow, it actually turns out to be true. She really is pregnant by way of the Holy Spirit of God and how all that works. And I'm gonna call him Yeshua or call him Joshua because he will save his people. And that made sense. They were waiting for a Messiah who would save his people, just like Joshua delivered and was a conqueror who saved his people in the Old Testament. But the angel adds a few words that are at the heart of what God's plan of redemption is. He will save his people from their sins. Now, my guess is that took Matthew, or that took Joshua, I'm sorry, that took Joseph back a second because he's going, save from their sins. One thing Joseph was not looking for in that day was a solution for sins. Hey, angel, we got a solution for sins. It's about three miles up the road. It's called a temple where you go in and sacrifice. And the angel would say, the ultimate sacrifice and the only sacrifice that is actually a solution for sin is the child you're about to get born to that Mary is carrying. Because redemption is for sinners and it is through a Savior. The second idea that I just want to talk about for a second is redemption is through a Savior. God's plan, the word Messiah means deliverer and God would send someone who would deliver His people from their sins. God's plan was not to send a sermon, not to send a list of rules. When he looked at broken humanity and all the twists in every family tree and every person in this room, his decision was to send a savior to do what no person and no amount of religious action could ever accomplish restore humanity back to life, restore them back to their creator. Redemption is through a Savior. And this is really huge, especially if you've been in church a long time. Because here's what we forget over time. We begin to think that, man, you know, I go to church, I give a tithe, I pay my taxes, I'm a pretty good person. And begin to think that my relationship with God is based on my behavior. Or I begin to think that, you know, I kind of deserve to have a relationship with God. And Matthew would highlight, every person who's ever Existed in this room can only approach God through a Savior. And God is out there and He's more interested in every person having a relationship with Him, which is why He would send a Savior. Because the world didn't need a second chance, it needed someone to save them from themselves. God, first and foremost, is not here to control you, to condemn you, to hurt you, but to save you. In our world, and many, when they think about God, they don't think of him first and foremost as, hey, I am here to save you. Distinct from every other world religion that's out there, which is earn your way to God, behave in a certain way, accomplish these tasks. The message that Matthew's going to highlight and the message of Christianity is God sent a savior. And anyone who accepts what Jesus did on the cross, dying in their place for their sin and rising again can have eternal life. God is here first and foremost to bring good. It's funny how much of our world, when they think about God, they think about this person who is primarily here to save them as there to harm them or there to hurt them or there to take from them or there to rip them off. It's my, uh, my kids, and if you have kids in the room, there's this phase that they go through where when you, especially in the holiday season, you go to the mall and you go see Santa, and Santa is terrifying to little kids. Like every child, for whatever reason, when they go and you go sit them on their lap and it makes sense, it's white, uh, they have white hair and a white beard and this red suit and kids have never seen this before and they're like, who is this man? And they sit on this stranger's lap and they're terrified. And here's a picture of my daughter that goes and doesn't understand that Santa <laughs> is a man who is primarily there to bring good about in your life. And yet, if you think about it, for a kid, you can get why why they'll be terrified. In fact, my son, last year, uh, when he was four, for like months after Christmas, this was like well into the new year, was terrified of Santa. He would scream at night, and I'd go into his room, and he'd wake him up, and he'd be like, could you make sure Santa's not here? And (laughs) True story. Because he had heard the story of a guy that breaks into your house, and he comes in and he's like, is he going to take anything? No, no, no. He's here to bring good gifts. I know, but I don't want the stranger. Can you make sure that he's not in the house right now? And it makes sense that as a kid, you know, you're trying to explain, no, this is a good break in. And he's like, I don't think it is, dad. And, and it's hilarious because it's this person that's solely here to bring good about to you. And yet with the wrong perspective, you think, oh, he's here to take from me. And Matthew's message to the world is God is here to give to you, specifically to give his own life for you, not to take. And there's a little part of all of our hearts that thinks, oh man, God, you know, He's not pleased with me, He probably is disappointed in me, He probably wants me to not have as much fun, He probably wants to take from me, He probably wants me to do more. And Matthew would say, above all of that, God is a savior. And he came to save you and I specifically from the debt that our sins created, a debt that none of us could pay. Because redemption is through a Savior, not through how much you do, not through your actions. It is through Jesus. And Matthew, in the Christmas story, highlights God is here to save you from your sins. Now, how does he save us from Our sins. That's the third idea I want to highlight. And to do so, I want to go to John's gospel, where John gives us his version of the Christmas story. Where John says this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He's talking about Jesus. Through him, that's Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that exists. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He walks through his Christmas story, and then a few verses later, he introduces us to the first interaction or first depiction of Jesus that we're given when Jesus arrives on the scene. It's from uh, John the Baptist, where John is describing who Jesus is, and he sees Jesus walking towards him. In other words, the first encounter that we See, in the book of John is an encounter between John the Baptist and Jesus. And here is how John describes him. The next day, verse 29, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That God would send a Savior to bring about redemption and in doing so, remove the sins. Of all who trust in him. Redemption is for sinners. It is through a savior. And redemption is the removal of sin. That's the language John uses. That the one who came to be a sacrifice to take your sin and my sin. That is the message of Christmas. That one would be born and placed in a crib to soon go to a cross. To die for you and me and to remove sins. The third idea if you take notes is redemption is the removal of sin. And all throughout Matthew's gospel, John's gospel, he's highlighting that God takes and what redefines all of humanity, even the list of people in the family tree of Jesus, what defines them is no longer their adultery, murder, incest, their prostitution. It is their relationship with Jesus that is the most significant thing about them. You know what's funny about Rahab? The only time in the Bible where Rahab is mentioned, and it doesn't have Rahab the prostitute, is Matthew chapter one. In other words, in James, in Hebrews, in Joshua, when Rahab is mentioned, it is Rahab the prostitute, and Matthew, as he's writing through, he goes, just Rahab, great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Because what is most significant about her is not Her occupation, her sin, her lifestyle, it is her relationship to Jesus. And the most significant thing about any person who's ever lived is their relationship to Jesus. And if they have trusted in him, then through God's plan of redemption, they have experienced the removal of sin. Now, it's so fitting that the family tree, like I said, would be broken and messed up because... All of us have brokenness in our tree. In fact, if I was to lay out my family tree, the things that I could contribute or bring into from my own life would reflect sin and brokenness, sin of anger, pornography, sexual sin, pride. If you were to list out the sins in your family tree, my guess is you could contribute, and certainly there's family and past scars and pain, that mark your tree and your life. And Matthew would say, if that's the case, you're exactly the type of person that God wants a relationship with and that is a candidate to experience the redemption plan of God, to remove sins and to redefine what defines you inside of your life. I've always thought it's so ironic that there's one time of the year where everyone does this tradition that's it's kind of a funny tradition if you were to explain it to someone with no context they get a tree and they bring it into their home and it's just as funny to to have a fake tree in your home like think about that no it's not a real tree it's a fake tree I mean both of them are weird can we be honest if you go back 700 years they'd be like wait you don't have a real you, you get like a plastic tree what is plastic by the way and that's funny for 700 year old jokes by the way and uh It's a funny tradition, and then we hang things on it. And the reason I think it's so ironic and funny is we hang ornaments and we hang things on a tree. And many people do this, and they're not even Christian. To celebrate the birth of one who came to be hung on a tree. The only person who's ever been born with the purpose to die. In other words, you were born to live. Jesus came into the world. And he was born to die for everything broken, every mistake, decision, regret, for you, for me. And we celebrate the one who was hung on a tree. And so you were handed an ornament on the way in, and I believe a a Sharpie, and we're going to do something that is going to hopefully accomplish two things going to have a chance to write on that ornament sins in our life or in your life that Jesus, just like in my life, Jesus was crucified, was hung on a tree for, to remember in this season that those things were paid for. The twofold application is that it reminds us both that, hey, my sin was so serious. Jesus had to come into this world to die and be crucified for your sin. And I want to encourage you, whatever degree you're comfortable with, to write on that. Maybe it's a past abortion. Maybe it's a pornography addiction. Maybe it's a current whatever struggle you're in. And to say, that was paid for. That doesn't define me. That doesn't control me. That is not more powerful than the one who died in my place on that cross. And we're going to have a chance in a second. All over the room, there's Christmas trees. And we're going to invite you to get up whenever you are finished writing that and to go place it on a tree as we celebrate and leave that there. It was paid for. It is finished. It is done. As 1 Peter says in chapter 2, he, speaking about Jesus, himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Paul in Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He broke the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham or the faith might come to the Gentiles or to all people so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We celebrate the one who was placed in a crib at Christmas to go to a cross and be hung on a tree. And we're gonna have a chance now to remind ourselves and to visually say, this doesn't define me anymore. And I'm leaving it here, remembering the one as I hang on a tree, this ornament who was hung on a tree for me. The band's going to play softly, and then we're going to close out here in just a couple minutes. But right now, if you have that sharpie, you can write wherever you are. Whenever you're done, you have a chance to go to any of the trees that are located here, any of the trees that are here, just as a visible representation. My sin was so serious, God had to die for it. But God's love in Christ is so powerful that it doesn't define me. And I'm leaving it there. And then I'll bring us out here in a second. you're still placing it you, you can continue to do that i just want to close this by speaking specifically to someone who may be in a season where you're still figuring out what you believe and i want to highlight the most important aspect of what we as christians believe and remind those of us who are christians of what we believe by bringing up what in essence is god's christmas tree in other words in heaven it's probably unlikely that god has one of these The message and the meaning of Christmas and the ultimate Christmas tree was the one that our Savior was crucified on. And I hope that you never look at ornaments again because anyone who's a believer in Christ knows that the moment you bring your brokenness and sin and bring it to the cross of Christ, the ultimate Christmas tree, what you get in exchange is no longer what defines you is the things and the sins in your past, that you are forgiven free loved restored and whether you believe it whether you feel it whether you sense it at the heart of redemption is that exchange where christ has redefined what defines you and removed sin in your life and placed on you you are clean you are washed and forgiven It's the message of Christmas. And of course, it's fitting that Christ would come and be hung on a tree for all those who would simply accept the gift. And the greatest gift is not under a tree this Christmas. It was hung 2,000 years ago for you and for me. And if you've never trusted in that, this is your morning. And God has you here for that purpose. And the reason we can hang sins on ornaments all over the room is because that doesn't define us anymore he does we're gonna worship him now in song let me pray father thank you that you have redefined for all who trust in you our life our existence thank you that the message of Christmas is simply the message of the gospel which is that you became a man you died in our place for all who would simply accept your payment for their sin on that cross we worship you now our savior who was born and placed in a crib one day would go to a cross for sinners and broken people like me and all who've ever lived we love you in christ's name amen